Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. I'm so pleased to have Sarah Rosen here today. Some of you have heard me talk now and again, sort of sort of with great glee about this wonderful project that I'm involved in and, and have been an advisor to in Providence, Rhode Island, the Community Music Works. And I think we have gotten to know Sierra through, through that wonderful little project. The, the development director there, Alexandra, introduced us to Sierra. And I've, we have just been looking for and wanting someone who can make plan giving complicated plan giving concepts simple, who really understands why it is and how it's important and can articulate it and really knows at the highest level what plan giving is is about. And that turns out to be Sierra Rosen, who has agreed to join us here today. Sierra is the executive director of plan giving at Brown University, which is in Providence. That's that's the connector. She has done a lot of big plan giving jobs, but this is her most recent and current uh, job. And I think really her her special sauce is that is that she can make sense of plan giving to people like me who have really little tolerance for the for the technical jargon of it. Right. Crits, crats, crats. I, I have no tolerance for that at all. But Sierra. Well, the truth comes out. <laughs> the truth comes out. Well, I'm so pleased to be here. What a great group that is here. I mean, the whole country. It's really extraordinary. So this is very fun. I'm yes, I'm I'm dialing in from rainy Providence. Um, and you know, I really feel um it's such an honor to be talking to the campaign toolkit community around plan giving and the case for plan giving and capital campaigns, because the reality is, is that plan giving is often overlooked as a second class citizen in giving. Um, and when I came to Brown, there was this sensibility that it was really, um, well, there was real hostility to it. I'm very open about that. When I first got there, it was real hostility towards plan giving. And I think we've really turned it around because what we've been able to show and talk about is that plan gifts are the most transformational gifts that an institution receives. And that's at the institutional level. At an individual level, they are the biggest gifts that individuals make. And it's usually by a very significant factor. I've been looking at it pretty closely at Brown and it's sometimes by a factor of 400. Um, 400 times their planned gift is 400 times their total lifetime giving. So when you think about this, right, it's not just the biggest gifts an institution receives, it's by far the biggest gift individuals make. And I'm now working with a, a, a number of nonprofits uh, largely secondary schools. And it's the same story. The numbers are different, but the the significant increase compared to total lifetime giving 
it's a similar story everywhere. And so I think the question is, why wouldn't you be integrating this into a capital campaign from the very beginning? If you know that what you want to do is increase the volume of these kinds of gifts, raise awareness. And the other reason I think to do it um, at the beginning of a capital campaign, as you're planning it out is first of all, playing gifts, they build endowments by and large. That's what they do. They build endowments, but they also are deferred gifts. And so you have to take a long-term perspective on them and they take a long time to develop. They take a long time to come in and you need to plan for that in your campaign. You can't raise 90% of your money, say, and plan gifts, deferred gifts, right? You need those cap, you need that money. Now you need to accomplish what you want to accomplish um, from a capital campaigns perspective, from an initiative perspective with current dollars. But what you can do with planned giving is create a real sustainable future. And if you integrate it early and often, you can hit all the right notes around what you want to raise now and what you want to raise through deferred gifts. And so that's really what we're sort of here to talk about, what I'm here to talk about. And I'm here to answer any questions you might have. The other thing that I want to put out there before we sort of move into questions is that There's also this old idea that planned gifts will cannibalize outright giving. And in fact, the opposite is true. In fact, time and time again, studies show that they not only um, donors increase their annual gifts after they've done a planned gift. And by planned gift, I mean, there is, I think, some question. Maybe we should spend a little time talking about what we mean by planned gifts. And largely what most people think of is um, estate gifts, right? That's like the pure vanilla version. You put your, you get a donor to put your institution in their will or living trust as a beneficiary of a life insurance plan, as a beneficiary of a retirement plan. That's the easiest, most effective way to to have a plan giving program. But then as, um, Andrea noted, there are cruts and crats and what I call those is life income gifts. That's where you give money to an institution they hold it, they invest it, and they pay an income back. And that's like the like the pretty easy way to talk about it. And um, and then there's what I like to talk about at Brown in particular, though this isn't true for everyone, is I like to talk about like uh, non, um, non-cash assets because the way most U.S. citizens hold wealth, 99% of U.S. wealth is held outside of cash. So if you and your institution can be in a place where you're talking about non-cash assets, including marketable securities, but any kind of non-cash assets, that's where you can really also move the needle and get the most transformational gift. So I did see um, someone asked me to- Hold on, hold on, Sierra. Before we yes. get to questions, let's okay. let's unpack okay. that a little bit. Um, yeah, great. So I'm, I'm excited you're ready to jump into questions. I want to give people a chance to like collect their thoughts and put their questions sure. into the Q&A box. Um, I just want to make sure that everybody heard you said so many important things right off the bat. So first of all, I think everybody heard, but can you say that you internalized these plan gifts are the biggest gifts that institutions make, uh, receive, and that individuals give. So the idea that your organization, now they're deferred gifts often. So I think that's why organizations probably backburner them or aren't as aggressive as they should be, but it is the number one way to grow your endowment. And everybody who comes to us to talk about a capital campaign says, we wanna grow our endowment. 
Um, and so the idea that you wouldn't have a major plan giving component as part of your campaign in an effort to grow that endowment is is crazy. And so we want to make sure that you have the tools, the language, the questions answered to start to implement some of these amazing and critical tools to make sure that your organization is getting the biggest gifts that it could get, uh, that your donors are making the biggest gifts that they could possibly make, and that you're growing your endowment sort of all in one. So, so many, I mean, I think exciting concepts that we're going to unpack, but I do want to just invite everybody to to ask their questions, and I see that we have some coming in. Um, Andrea, do you want to do you want to say anything else before we go yes. to the questions? Yes, I, Sarah, you said if I got you right, and the number just just bowled me over. You said that that or that people give four hundred times in a planned gift what they give in their lifetime live giving to organizations that's what we see at brown that's what we see on average give me give me that in real terms i have trouble with that math somehow <laughs> so right i mean i think when you look at you know give me a second and i you know i can pull up some actual numbers figures i don't have them handy right now but i you know we I, I, there will be a presentation an example, a presentation, just and, and I will make sure I have those in there. But yeah, I mean, we see this all the time I mean, where someone does, you know, maybe they're they're Well, so here's an example. Here's a really good example. Yes. I will tell you. So and let's see if these numbers quite work out. But um, we this is maybe more like a hundred X um, and we're not done yet. But we have a donor who um it was right when I first started Brown, actually, he was approaching his 40th reunion. He had given his largest gift ever had been a thousand dollars. His total lifetime giving was um, just over two thousand dollars at his 40th reunion. In honor of his 40th reunion, he did a hundred thousand dollar gift annuity. So that spread um, is I guess that's not that one in particular isn't 400 X, but it's it's 100 X, I think, if I have that math right. And <laughs> That's and that just came in without us even really trying. We had just the, the beginning around. He it was sort of oh, he kind of connected the dots um, about well, I've got this 40th reunion, and and so we hadn't at that point we weren't including planned gifts in the 40th in any reunion. So that's been one of the things I've been working on um, pretty hard at Brown is to get them included because of examples like this. Um, and there's there's lots of them when you look at this spread of. Um, you know, giving it, you know, never giving more than a thousand dollars and then can do a hundred thousand dollars and did it because it's their planned gift. And he's coming up on his 45th and he's going to do another one too. So, and that's the other thing that I would add is that's so great about planned giving. When we get our first gift, we're so excited because we know planned giving donors, they tend to be serial donors. So we got our first one and we have working with a board member and we've been working on, it took, it's taken us a long time. I mean, a lot of these are kind of tough nuts to crack. I mean, just they take a long time. They have to deal with life events or who knows, you know, there's all different kinds of psychologies around when they come around. He just did a $200,000 gift annuity, but we know this is just the beginning. Like we know this is, and he's sort of indicated as much. He's sort of testing the waters and there's a lot more that we think is going to back this up. And he's really 
we feel like he's really liked the experience. And so we now know that there's probably going to be a whole series of these coming in. And so that's the other thing is once they start, it does tend to be sort of like a nice installment plan going forward in all of these different varieties. Um, but I would make sure that I have like real clear numbers um, handy so that I can say like, you know, I can match it up. Do I look every time we get these planned gifts, I sort of look and see well, what's, what were they giving before this planned gift? Um, and in his case, he hasn't, you know, he hasn't died. And so that's in real time, but it's a really good example that I can recall really easily. But I look um, pretty consistently at what people have given total in their lifetime and compare it to what our estate gifts are. Yeah. Thank you. So one of the one of the things Sierra's referring to is that we are actually going to have her back for a formal uh, webinar in two weeks. I think two weeks from tomorrow. I'm going to post the link to that webinar in the um, in the chat right now. So you'll need to register for that. And um, we're charging a teeny tiny fee of twenty nine dollars, I think it is. Um, but for our current toolkit clients, if you're a paying toolkit member, it's free. So um, you'll be getting a code for that, or you can email us and we'll send you the code for that. So current toolkit members are free for that webinar. Everybody else, um, it's I think it's $29 that we're charging. Um, and Sierra will come and give so many more specific details as she's referenced. But let's, let's look at some of these questions. I think there are really good questions coming in. Um, so the first one is, if we finished a capital campaign and we didn't incorporate in most cases, a discussion about planned gifts. How do we do it now? And I think that could be applied pre-campaign, post-campaign, anytime during your annual fund. So let's generalize it a little bit. How do we start a plan giving program, I think is, is the crux of the question. Yeah, great question. So my quick answer is just start, just start. And the first place to start is, do you have a legacy society? And if you don't, start a legacy society. That's really, you know, that is, that costs you nothing. Um, some time to think about what's a meaningful name. Um, how do you want to brand it? And often I think what you'll find though, is you have plenty of members who could already be in there. And so a lot of it is like looking back and saying, who can we recognize? And then you can use that to push out a real campaign for new legacy society members and say, we've got this new legacy society. Um, we'd really love to welcome you as a founding member, whatever you think will be relevant and push that out and just start um, and start to recognize and celebrate these gifts. I mean, and, and I think really paying attention to what's the culture um, that you have at your institution in terms of what will make, what will motivate people. Is it the impact? Is it what their peers are doing? Is it a combination of both? Usually it's a combination of both, um, but start. There's no, you know, I think, um, so that's the first thing. And then, you know, it's very easy to get language about putting your institution um, in their will or living trust. You can go to anyone's website. I mean, this is the easiest thing to do. You can just go see what other institutions are doing and you can pretty much copy it. I mean, that's the thing that's nice about the industry we're in. Like that's an easy thing to, to take. And that costs you, again, that costs you no money to simply put on your website. Here's how you could include my institution, our institution and in your estate plans. The best thing that people can do really is to name your institution as a beneficiary of their retirement plan. It doesn't require a call to a lawyer. It doesn't require um, any kind of change in their estate planning. They, they can just 
I, I said it takes five minutes. One of my donors said it actually took me more than five minutes, but you know, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes to go on, pull up the beneficiary designation form. They're all online now and write your organization in as either a percentage or a dollar amount. So this is all information you can have on your website, and then you can start to plan a marketing um, strategy around just early and often messaging this. And what we find is that um, you have to commit to a long-term plan with plan giving. Like you can't think we'll do one push and we'll get a really big, um, you know, inundated, we'll get inundated with a whole bunch of new legacy society members. You have to start and commit to the process and do it early and often. I mean, we, you know, I can give a good, um, a good anecdote about this. I was working with our Emeriti members of our board at Brown and they're very numbers and results driven. And so we had this very ambitious goal and I was quite excited because it was kind of being owned by this uh, volunteer group of kind of, you know, leaders at our institution. And um, so we, we said, great, like, let's have this very ambitious goal. And we didn't even come close. Like we did not even come close. And so we kind of had to reevaluate and re um, reassess how we were going to measure success. And we, you know, I gave them a, a real, um, you know, it was, you know, kind of this, you know, like, let's don't be, don't be discouraged. It was, you know, sort of a, like a, a kind of trying to get them to keep them from being discouraged and, you know, just really committing to the process. Well, you know, six to 12 months later, we've actually now can show a ton of success. We just couldn't quite do it in the short timeline that we wanted to do it. And I think that's another way to think about plan giving. It's not like the annual fund where we say, okay, our fiscal year is ending. We need you, like make your gift, get it in. Plan gifts happen on the donor's timeline. And, you know, as I said before, it's, you know, it's around life events and it's pretty unpredictable. It doesn't happen on the institution's timeline. And so that's why it's really important to be committed to the process and um, make sure that you can maintain what you're doing year over year over year. What isn't good is the stops and starts. And there's another example where we had someone, I mean, there's tons of these. I mean, there's like this. Sarah, let, 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 let me stop you for a minute. You okay. know, many, many of the people here are in relative to Brown, small organizations. I mean, some are, you know, good sized organizations are relative to Brown. Most of them are, are, are smaller. And, and uh, let's see if we can break this down really simply, right? Let's, uh, you talk about a bequest society, right? What? Or that's not what you called it. You called it a legacy. A, a legacy, a legacy society. society. Let's. What it actually is a legacy society? Okay. Good. Yeah. And great simply, question. And it's simplest. Yes. What is it? Yeah. Great. So at its simplest, it's a recognition society. So it simply recognizes your supporters who have provided for your institution through a planned gift as your institution defines it. So a lot of space, a lot of opportunity. Usually it's some kind of deferred gift commitment coming through an estate provision. Um, if, you're, if your institution is too small to say, have a split interest of life income, get a program where you get income back, right? That takes a bit more sophistication. That's a little bit harder to start up, but anyone can have, as I said, language on their website or through marketing materials that encourages um, an estate gift, a provision in a will or trust or a beneficiary designation. So now, if you have a legacy society, though, what do you do with those people? So that's, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, you can start out by simply recognizing them. Um, you can start out by, you know, there's a lot of space to do this, however you want to do it. A lot of places have a donor honor roll 
that has um, some drawbacks to it because it's pretty time intensive. If you make mistakes, it can be painful. It can, you know, undo all the good work you're trying to do. A lot of places have luncheons. Um, what we really try to do at Brown, I mean, yes, we are a big institution, but we also have limited resources just like everyone else. And so one of the things I work really hard to do is look around at what our institution is already doing for some of our most important donors and asking them to scoop up our legacy society members. Wow. When you think about, and this has taken me some time, but when you think about, again, their relative importance <laughs> contributions they'll make, they deserve to be at the table in these VIP events. And so if there's, and then you can also make the case on resources, like it takes some pressure off our events team if we're not doing a separate event for legacy society members, but we're simply scooping them up and piggybacking on existing events. So I often try to do that as much as I can because we are very small. Our plan giving program is actually very small at Brown. Our, our team is very small at Brown. And then what you can do is you can have special designations. So when they show up, they get a really special ribbon or a button or something that denotes that they are a legacy society member. And the goal, of course, is that someone says, hey, what's that ribbon? Mm-hmm. And they can answer. Sometimes they, I found I, I need to do a better job at my institution because sometimes someone will say, hey, what is that ribbon for the College of Society? And they'll say, I don't know, which is not what I want to have happen. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some work to do on my branding, but if, um, but you can see that some of this can be actually fairly simple and fairly, you can just tap into existing infrastructure with regard to events and stewardship. Um, the other thing we do is because we know that um, plan gives build endowments and at a place like Brown, they also largely support scholarships. We do an impact report every year. That's about a student. And in our case, um, and it's, it's, targeted toward our College Hill Society members, which is our legacy society. And in our case, you know, we haven't, it's hard to know what it's all designated for, but we feel like we can always make a case that ultimately it comes back to the students. And so if we profile students who are interesting and, um, you know, inspiring and doing things that we want to profile that, you know, it does make people feel really good about their future gift, no matter where it's going. And I think there's lots of parallels to that at any institution. So I do spend a lot of time looking at how I can simply use existing resources and infrastructure. Good. All right. That's great, Sierra. That's super helpful. Let's go to some of the questions. I think there's a, um, all of these questions are great questions. I want to go to one from Delin that says, how exactly do gift annuities work? So start with what are gift annuities um, and how do they work? And I think the important thing is how could a really small nonprofit um, implement them? And and if you don't know the answer to that, I do, but start with what are they? Well, let's, oh, I love this. Wait, 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 wait. Gary's question ties into that. And he wants to know if there are some compliance issues that people need to be aware of with gift annuities. So we can put, we can put those two questions together. Good. Yeah. So good question. So there are, well, it'll be interesting to see how um, Amy and I approach this. So, um, Gift annuities can be really, on the one hand, once you get the program going, they're some of the easiest gifts. Well, what are they? Start, what are they? Good point. So you, um, they're a life income gift, as I described. You make a gift to an institution. They invest the money and they pay an income back. The income is a fixed income. And it's usually, but not always, um, set according to the rates that the American Council on Gift Annuities set. Most, so there's this American Council on Gift Annuities, they say, 
secure the rates for donors or beneficiaries, the person who's going to receive the income based on their age. And they have a very complicated way of setting these rates, but ultimately they set the rates based on some investment assumptions and with the idea that 50% will remain for the institution when the gift terminates, which is usually, but not always, when the beneficiary dies. So what do donors like about these? Donors like that they can make a big gift and get some income back. They like that the income is fixed and dependable. So it can be a nice way to have a fixed income component of your portfolio. Um, I mean, truly donors do think about that. I don't like to encourage it because I, I like to, I get nervous when we talk about this as being an investment or part of your portfolio, but often donors really do think about this as part of their fixed income portfolio. And it's um, the nature of the income can be very tax efficient. So I just said a lot there in, in, in simpler terms, you give money and in return, you get a fixed income back and you get tax deduction for a, a portion of the gift that's considered charitable. So let me, Sarah, let me drill down with that just a little further. Sure. Well, I'm of an age where I might think about something like that. If I were, and, I, and I'm a Brown alum, by the way. Well, um, you're I'm, one of our targets. Yes, you're exactly. Our- if I were to give, let's say, just for the sake of discussion, if I were to give $50,000 into a gift in a gift annuity to Brown, would I get a tax deduction for that whole amount? No, you would not. You would get, so if you gave 50,000, the way that the IRS thinks about this, um, and it's the IRS that sets these rules, the way that the IRS thinks about this, they say, okay, you're giving us $50,000, but you're going to get an income back for your life. So it's really not the same as someone who gives $50,000 away, doesn't retain any right to income. So you, but we'll give you some, we recognize that some amount will be left and we want to figure, we want to give you some credit for this charitable component. And so in broad strokes, someone who uh, understands actuarial tables and present value life expectancies will say that I'm way oversimplifying this, but in broad strokes, the the IRS says, okay, we're going to take the present value of how much we think you're going to get over your lifetime in income. And we'll subtract that from the $50,000. So they think, okay, based on your life expectancy, how much we think you're going to get, what the rate is, we think you're going to get $20,000 back from this $50,000 gift. And so they take the difference and the $30,000 would be your charitable deduction. Right. Now, if I were to do that to a small organization, how would the small organization figure out what to do? If I go to, you know, community music works and say, gee, I want to give a gift annuity, right? How would they? Yeah, so this is complicated. It's complicated to have the infrastructure to. So so let me simplify it. Let me simplify it. That's what community foundations do for small organizations. You will not run your own program. And I don't know if this is what you were going to say, Sierra, and I'll let you finish. But most of the people on this call are not going to run their own charitable gift annuity programs. They are going to go through their community foundation. And any of you that do this, chat in. Go ahead. Tell us if you use your local community foundation. But that's what community foundations do is they help small. One of the many things they do is they help small organizations run these. So if you have one donor who wants to give 10000 for a charitable gift annuity, talk to your community foundation and they will... Um, probably help set that up for you. 
Um, and basically, um, you know, I just wanted to give an example. So if an 80 year old does this, uh, you know, and I haven't looked at these tables in a long time, they might get 5% back for the rest of their life paid out quarterly or something, um, just to give people a sense of what the payout might be. It might be seven, six, seven, eight percent back um, for an 80 year old. I don't, I don't know, Sierra, maybe it doesn't matter, but just to give people a sense of what donors get back. Um, okay. So, yeah, so I, can I can tell you exactly for an eight year old, it would be six and a half percent for one 80 year old. Right. And I mean, the reason we're trying to drill down is just to help people on this call understand how they might actually act setting up some kind of a some kind of a program like this. Right. Which is to go to their go to their community foundation and talk about whether they could set it up and then create a legacy society, which would list the people who have charity, who, who, who right. do this and have others, other forms of planned gifts. Right. I mean, my suggestion for what it's worth yeah. is. Know that you can, yes. Yeah, so Amy's exactly right. Community foundations are really, really most equipped to handle this. My suggestion for what it's worth is set up a legacy society, focus all on estate gifts. If a donor comes in and says, I've heard there's this thing called gift annuities. I want to do one at your institution. Yeah. This is how you can do it. I don't think it's a good use of your time and effort to spend a lot of time trying to set up a gift annuity program and hopes, you know, in case someone comes in. So that we may disagree on that, but if I were going to come in and start a plan giving program at a small institution, and I, this is essentially what I've done with, with community music works, I've said, you know, here are the easy things you can focus on and get going. And as you get more donors and as you're in a better position to talk about this, you can get more sophisticated, but you don't, I wouldn't start with this if you don't have right. this program. Right. 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 You just don't gonna, need to. Sierra, okay. last time I checked, bequests were about 90% of planned gifts that may, are made. Do you think that's still the case? Uh, there's oh, something like question. 80, 80 to 90% of planned gifts are bequests in this country. Um, maybe not at Brown because you have so many more sophisticated. Let me look. Tools. I actually don't know that. Let me look. Okay. I be good to know. And I can tell you like what we are at Brown. I can also tell you, you know, I'm working with a, a number of smaller independent schools. I can sort of just look and see what I'm seeing in the industry. No, that sounds right. That sounds um, the only reason I bring it up is that you don't, if you're getting started, you don't have to do anything but accept bequests, right? Yes. I mean, and Sierra, you've, you've hinted at that. So we're, you know, talking about charitable gift annuities, which are a little bit more complicated, but you don't need to worry about that. If you're just getting started, start by just say, telling the world that you accept bequests. Um, or, and even more than that, um, not even that you accept them, but there's a real reason to do them at your institution. There's a real impact that they can have, you know, yeah. because, um, you know, I, I think we don't do a good enough job talking about the impact and the long-term sustainability. If you care about our organization, here's a great way to make sure we're around forever doing this really important work. Put us in your estate plans. And, you know, I okay. think we work at our institutions because we do believe in what, what they're doing. Um, yeah. Andrea, what question has caught your eye? Well, there are a number of questions here about, and it is right in our in our wheelhouse about plan giving and capital campaigns. And how do we, how do we fit those together? Do they belong together? And how do you think about them, Sierra, uh, fitting together or not? 
So I do think they fit together. And this is one of the things we've talked a lot about. I think they fit together. And I think it's better when you, if you can think about them at the beginning and think about articulate a goal from the very beginning, I think Dartmouth just did this. And I think they did a really, they took a really thoughtful, comprehensive approach. I think someone also has to like, what do you do? Or, you know, what do you do if you have it? And that is part of it is just start and think, you know, think about what your goals are. Um, usually, I think Amy, you said in the beginning, usually um, a big goal of most campaigns is to raise endowments, right? So if you think about what do we want to raise now, what do we want to raise to plan gifts so that, you know, the next versions of ourselves have a much, they're starting with a bigger endowment. That's an easy thing to do. If it's scholar scholarships, you could start to like think about like a scholarship goal through bequests or something like that. You know, capital campaigns are hard to do through planned gifts. I don't think those lend themselves well to planned gifts. And so that's another reason to be thinking about this at the very beginning. If what you're doing in your campaign is a capital campaign, then really think hard, long and hard about how you're going to market planned gifts and if you even want to, right? I mean, I think they should be part of it no matter what, because, um, you know, this, again, it builds endowments. The other thing about capital campaigns, right, that we know, or I see a lot is, you raise the money for the building, but there's no accompanying endowment to support all of the ongoing maintenance. So that could be, if, if it's a capital campaign and you need the funds now, think about how planned giving could help support the long-term goals of that building and make it so that you can actually afford it, not just the building, but you can afford the, the cost of the building in the long-term. So I, I think there's a lot of really smart ways to think about this. And I think it really is looking at your program, looking at what your goals are and how planned giving can really add, um, be the cherry on top, really, in terms of getting you where you want to go um, as part of this campaign, but really in a much longer term view. Lynn has asked a question about, about whether there's a benchmark or estimated ratio to use for deferred gift in setting the goal for a capital campaign. And let, let me just say that we we generally encourage people to have um, to have an endowment compo- component of their campaigns, right? In large part because because you will be talking to your largest owners in through the campaign process and you want to be able to talk to them about making a planned gift and you can't count that towards the building for the reasons that you've articulated right that money won't come in now the i know that you don't kind of see it this way but we often have encouraged people not to set a planned giving dollar goal but to set an activity goal Right. We want to talk to 30 people about including us in their wills, for example, or we want to see if we can get people to to document that they have included us in their wills, a certain number of people. And we want. And so we have an activity goal for the campaign that over time will will raise will yield money. But it isn't done as a you know, we're going to raise four million dollars in our endowment through planned gifts. What's your sense of that, Sierra? Yeah, I mean, I think I essentially agree with that. I think um, having, you know, usually you don't really want to see in your campaign, depending on how you set it up, you normally don't want to see more than 30% coming in through deferred commitments. And I think if you can keep it to a quarter, that's very healthy. Um, So for whatever that's worth, but it really is so, it's so case specific. It really depends on what you're trying to accomplish and what you need the money for. I, I mean, as I said earlier, I do like to, I think it's really important to commit to the process and committing to the process really does um, yield results. And that's hard for me because I like to focus on outcomes and 
um, I do think there's a way to sort of split the baby on this one, which is that um, we try to really focus on how many new legacy society members we bring in, because if you're focusing on that, then a lot of the activity kind of has to necessarily happen. So it's a way of kind of splitting the baby in terms of being results oriented in a way that gets to the process a little bit. But really the process is like messaging, stewardship, um, and, and those things that you really can control. You can't always control if someone wants to talk to you about plan giving, but you can control your messaging. You can control how often that goes out. You can control the form it takes and you can control the way you steward these donors. Um, and so I think those are, you know, focusing on what you can control and committing to it. The other thing I tell people a lot, and I just met with, um, a marketing team recently with a, with a school I'm working with in Mississippi and, um, you know, make sure that whatever you're planning for your budget, you can sustain it year over year over year. So don't spend a big splashy amount on plan giving thinking, okay, we'll do like this big amount and we'll get a good results and then we'll make the case for it. It just simply doesn't work that way. So pick an amount that you can spend year over year over year and slowly, but surely you'll see the, the gifts coming in, but it starts, it truly starts at a trickle. But once starts it once it gets going once the spigot gets turned on it really you start to see a lot of results and it has the snowball effect but again it's committing to the process i like that i want to be sure that we that we address a couple of very basic but important issues one is that i i think plan giving um and building endowments uh generally are not an appropriate way for new young organizations to focus their fundraising. And I'm always, I'm sometimes amused that an organization, you know, a startup organization, it will say, you know, they say, I want to, we want to raise, we want to raise an endowment so we never have to fundraise anymore. And, you know, there is no assurance that this organization is going to be in existence in 10 years or 20 years. Right? When you look at an institution like Brown or other, you know, secondary schools or many many social service organizations that have been around 50 years or a hundred years, these organizations are going to be around. And yeah. that I think is one of the hallmarks of an organization that has the capacity to build a, a substantive plan giving program. I think you're right about that. And I, you know, um, when you think about these gifts and donors, oh, you know, when you think about them being the most transformational gifts. And when you think about, well, this is this person's life work that they're leaving behind, they are going to pick an institution that I think is going to be around. It's everything that they work towards, you know, it's everything that they have to show for themselves in a lot of ways. And so they are going to very much want to make sure that the organization will still be around and will be good stewards of the money. And so I do think that that's a real advantage that places like Brown have. Um, and I do try to leverage that a lot, you know, but I do think looking at impact is really important and making the long-term, showing that you're here for the long-term and making a long-term case, I think is really important. And, you know, don't forget that when the first thing I talked about is that planned gifts help increase annual fund gifts. And, and I do, someone did ask for the, the citations on that. I do have, I do have those. And so I'm happy to get those either via email or I'm happy to tell you them now, but there was an Indiana university in 2000, Indiana university study in 2007, that when charity was in the will, the average annual gift was almost $4,500 without charity in the will. It was just over 2000. That was one in 2007. And then Russell James also did, who's everyone, I think most people kind of 
at this point I've heard of him because he's kind of all the time everywhere talking about plant giving and philanthropy. And he, he shows similar results and they're more recent. Um, so there is reason also, if you want to increase your long-term annual fund support, whether it's an actual annual fund or just your outright dollars that come in every year, that plan gifts do help make a difference. And I, I think the reason why is, I don't know if anyone's ever said why, but when you think about who goes into your will, it's your family and closest friends. And I think when you, when you put that charity in your will, you're realizing like, oh, this is essentially family. This charity now has the same places as my family does. Um, and I, and the other thing about being in the first will, you're likely to stay in all the subsequent wills. And so getting yeah. it often makes a difference. Let's go to Michelle's question. We have so many questions. I want to get to at least a few more of them. So Michelle, I think, you know, you were just touching on family. So Michelle's asking, how do you get someone who says they aren't interested since they're leaving everything to kids and grandkids? What do you say to that? How do you address that? I mean, I don't, I don't, I say, great, I get it. Like, I, I mean, that's just probably not your best prospect then. And you, you're not going to probably win them over. I think just staying engaged, continuing to make the case for your institution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think you want to be in a position where your institution is seen as, you know, competing with family members or kids. And so I just don't touch that, but, and that's, Okay. I mean, you know, we all make decisions in how we fundraise. And when you see that a donor seems to not have the inclination that you're looking for, you continue to hold on to them, but you maybe don't, uh, you maybe move on a bit. And so really, I mean, that's what I actually think is the point that you brought up is who are your best prospects? Your best prospects are people who don't have any kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that for sure is true. There's a lot of data on that, but I actually don't think it's an either or proposition. I always respond to that great, leave 90% to kids and grandkids. And then, you know, think about your life in sort of a a wheel, a chart, right? A pie chart. And what are your priorities? Your priorities are, of course, are family. So leave 90% to family. And then maybe, you know, you want to leave 3% to your church and 3% to your hospital, 3% to your alma mater. I don't think it has to be an either or proposition, but again, you know, it's, it's how you want to, you know, you have to read every donor and every situation differently. And sometimes they're not a good prospect. And I think that's to your point, that's okay too. And you have to acknowledge that and move on. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a really good point because the other thing is really depends on what life stage they're at. And that's another reason to stay close with these donors. I mean, they might be saying that when they just don't quite know how launched their kids are, you know, are they going into the arts? Are they going to be starving artists? Um, are they going to be doing running hedge funds? Like it really matters. And often they can't quite tell mm-hmm. uh, the life stage where they just don't quite know where they're going to end up. And there also might be disagreements between spouses about how they feel about this. And that's something I encounter as well. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, ra- I think you raised a good point. It's not either or, but it is important to stay close, but I don't, I, I don't, I probably wouldn't say what Amy said. I mean, then that's okay. just, that's just not my comfort level. And I, I can't see my way to saying that. I just say, great. You know, we love all the support you give us totally get it. We're here. And what I have found also when I go through the files is that people who say they're not leaving you in their will, they do. So <laughs> I found that too. So, um, you know, just stick with it. But I don't try to do it through necessarily through persuasion in that one conversation. That's just not how I'm wired. 
So Gary has asked a really practical question. Thank you for it, Gary. What forms of documentation do you recommend that an organization requests from donors if they're going to put you in their will, I think is what the... Yeah, great question. I mean, most institutions, if there's, if you're simply going to recognize a donor in your legacy society, require nothing. Like just that they said, um, I've put your organization in my estate plans. Most institutions across, I actually think all institutions across the country say, great, we'll put you in our legacy society. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Like it costs you nothing to put them in your legacy society. It's great stewardship. The goal is to get them closer. Um, when you start to count these bequests, if you do that, and that's kind of, that can be a bit um, iffy at certain organizations, more and more institutions are celebrating, recognizing donors for their gifts now. And I think you can see why these are the biggest gifts they're going to make. So they should be honored and celebrated and recognized now. So I just tipped my hand and how I feel about it. But I understand that CFOs and other fundraisers feel like, well, this is a smoke and mirrors kind of gift. Like we may not get it. It's irrevocable. So I, I definitely can understand why people might not be comfortable doing it. When you come down to recognizing these plan gifts and what kind of documentation you require, um, I can tell you what Brown does and I can tell you what, I, like, you know, Harvard doesn't require any kind of um, language Um like they don't require any kind of estate provision, but these they have you sign this like basically this document that's a lien on your estate, <laughs> and um, people sign it, which is like shocking to me. People signed it like it was no big deal. Um, at Brown, we I do actually request if we're going to celebrate and recognize them for these gifts. I actually really try not to use the word document because it scares donors, and I think it seems much harsher than it is. So I say we'd love to celebrate and recognize you for this gift. Would you be interested in sharing some of the details about it? That's how I talk about it. So it's not I'm none. Most of my colleagues in advancement talk about documenting the planned gift, and I, I'm really trying to move away from that language. But we simply ask for the provision in the will or estate plan. And like, it doesn't have to be a copy. It doesn't have to be anything other than like, you can type up, like it's usually a sentence or two, type it up and, and put it in an email, whatever is easiest. I just like, it's like our one moment to see what's coming and can we even comply with what they want? Have they put something in there that we could never actually comply with? So that's just kind of a nice opportunity. We get a sense of what's coming. And then we ask them to sign a form and the form says on its face, it's revocable and that they, but they don't intend to change it or reduce it, but everyone's recognizing that this is not enforceable and it's pure, totally revocable. Most people are really comfortable with that. I don't, every once in a while I hit a snag where someone wants to alter the language, but mostly at Brown, people are really comfortable. Every institution is different. Um, and so I think it really depends on what your institution is comfortable with and what your donors are comfortable with. Um, I mean, I don't think if we had that Harvard document that people at Brown would sign that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to Jane's question. Jane wants to know if you can address the process for accepting gifts of stock. What's the value of the gift, the gross stock value or the net value? How do you, how do you value stock? Sure. Yeah. So you should be taking stock. Like you should, if you can do one thing, you should take stock because again, 99% of us assets are held outside of cash and it's largely marketable securities and it's a really tax efficient way for donors to make a gift. So I'll just put that out there. So, um, the way the, and why it's tax efficient is this, if you buy a stock for $40 and you, sold it for a hundred, you'd have to pay capital gains on that $60,000 increase. And you'd have to pay it somewhere between 15 and 20% depending on your tax bracket. If you give that hundred dollar, that stock that you bought for 
$40. If you give it to your institution, it's now worth a hundred. There's no capital gains on it. And the IRS recognizes you as a hundred dollar donor. So you, yeah, you get a hundred dollar, you qualify for a hundred dollar tax deduction, but it's really tax efficient. And I keep thinking everyone knows this and I keep coming across very sophisticated donors that are shocked by it. So I realize I need to be talking about this more. The way it's valued is this, it comes into your, on the day it comes into your account, the IRS says you have to take the average of the high and low, and that's the value for it. And so usually someone's investment, you can get it on Bloomberg, um, your CFO can probably get that information, but that's how you value it. And then there's a lot of kind of tricky ways you need to handle the receding. And usually what I do, I think the, the best practice is to say on this day, we received this amount of stock from you and it, here's the high, here's the low, here's the average and have them give that to their tax advisors. So you're being very careful about what you're saying about the value of the gift. You're simply acknowledging you received it. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think that's perfect. Andrea, why don't you pick one more question and then we will let Sierra leave people with some final words of wisdom in anticipation of her upcoming webinar. Yes. So um, Ann Payton has asked us some very, brought up some very good good topics here. So let me go to her. She says, if you have a dollar goal for planned giving campaign, it's hard to have a dollar progress when you don't require a donor to declare a dollar amount of a bequest or a percentage um, of the IRA. Right. I mean, she's right. You know, she's pointing to right. a problem. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And I realized that that. So when we go to those values, um, that's the other thing we let donors tell us what it's worth. So if they say, I've got you in there for a hundred thousand dollars in my IRA, we say that's, and we're going to celebrate and recognize them for that gift. We take their word for it. Um, and that feels like the right thing to do to me. I don't make them prove it. My predecessor used to make them prove it. And, um, that just didn't, doesn't feel right to me. So we let them estimate, we recognize, and often we'll say we recognize it's a snapshot in time. It could go up and could go down. So we let you tell us how much you feel comfortable letting us celebrate and recognize you for. And the reality is, you know, I look at these a lot when they come in and I look to see, did we ever, you know, count this gift? And it's all over the place in terms of up and down, but in the aggregate, we get more than we ever um, counted. So I think it works out to our benefit. I think donors tend to be conservative about it. And sometimes there isn't anything there and it's not there what we thought, but in the, in the aggregate, we get more. Yeah, I think you have such a wonderful gentle touch in this. It really is a donor-based touch. You're you're doing this from a donor perspective rather than from a an, an institutional give me the money perspective. And I suspect that that's that that's incredibly effective. Right? Well, I think it does benefit the institution in the long run. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. And one does. might not imagine it to be true, but I think that that really makes perfectly good sense to me. Because once people feel well treated and well cared for, and as though, you know, then they will come 
come to you again and again. I have just just a very quick question, which we might touch on at some other time. But but I have I have um, periodically been fascinated by this idea of a, of a bequest challenge. Have you worked with bequest challenges? And do you? I've often thought that, that no, but I would like to. I love the idea of a bequest challenge, and I haven't had any institution have the appetite. I know Boston Children's did one. I think they had a ton of success, and I really love the idea of it, but for whatever, and I've sort of floated it, um, but do you want to talk about how you see them, Andrea? Yeah, sure, sure. I'll just be yeah, really, really, really very simple and very quick uh, about it, but the idea of a bequest challenge is that you get get someone, get a donor who is keen on building for an organization an organization they're involved with to build their endowment. And that donor understands that one of the reasons staff doesn't spend time and energy doing that is because it doesn't benefit the immediate bottom line. So the donor will say, I'm going to put up a challenge of, let's say, $100,000. And every time someone in, indicates that they that this organization is in their will, I will give X number of dollars from this challenge to the annual fund. Right. Or or to the campaign, they'll give money to, to a current need because they will have triggered, they will have challenged people to give planned gifts to the organization. They and, and in doing that, it makes planned giving present. Right. It turns planned giving from deferred giving. It right. gives it a gives it a result that is that will benefit the bottom line of the people doing the fundraising today. The American Civil Liberties Union has had huge luck with you know, positive results from that. And a bunch of small organizations we've been involved with through the, the generosity of a, of a guy that I told about this once, he has, he has seeded these all over the place and they have been That's incredibly great. successful. I mean, little bitty ones. They've been remarkably successful. So, all right. That's great. Before we wrap up, I'm going to let Sierra, you know, leave us with some final thoughts and just some last minute ideas. I just want to remind everybody, encourage everybody to sign up for Sierra's webinar that we have coming up in a couple of weeks. Bring your board members and your, um, you, you know, your boss, your board members. Um, and I'm going to paste again in the chat uh, the link so that you can go immediately and sign up as soon as we're finished. Um, all right, Sierra, what else would you like to add um, and to share with people as their final key takeaways? <laughs> well, I'm, um, I really appreciated this um, conversation. And I think the point is that planned gifts can really move the needle for you in big transformational ways and to start what you can do, just start. Um, and there are lots of um, easy ways to begin. You don't have to get really complicated right away. Great. Sarah, what happens? We've had two questions here. I just want to tie them up because they're here. Sure. What happens sure. if someone sure. makes a planned gift to an organization and the organization folds? What happens to the money? What does happen to the money? Um, I think it goes, it goes back into the estate and then it goes back into, it becomes part of the pool that's left um, to distribute to all the other beneficiaries. Right. Yeah. That's actually reassuring. Yeah. It doesn't kind of end up out there wasting somebody yeah. going out to a fancy dinner on it, right? It just goes back into the estate. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, 
plan giving is so important. It really is so important. We are we are sort of cogitating the idea of of including some kind of a plan giving component uh, in the capital campaign toolkit. We don't yet know what that will be like, but or what that would look like. But we think it probably is important. And and if any of you think that would be interest, you would be interested in that. We'd love to know whether whether having a a program that actually guides you step by step to put a little plan giving program together would be interesting or, you know, there, it seems a hole in the field and it looks big and intimidating, but as you can tell from Sierra, it doesn't have to be big and intimidating. It can be simple and well done. So, so let us know if you think something like that would be interesting. We're, and I think just based on the questions we've gotten today, such good, good, them, important right. questions. Um, and I think, you know, we'll make sure that Sierra answers some more of these in the upcoming webinar. We clearly know to leave lots of time in the webinar for lots of good questions. I think that'll be a clear component. So uh, come back for more. And it was great to see everybody today. Sierra, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your brilliance around this really important topic. I think that these gifts are transformational and that's what campaigns are all about. So um, they really do go hand in hand. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.